Shock, misery, and anger arose on the night of Friday, July 20th, a month ago, when a madman went on a rampage at a century movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, during a midnight premiere of the film The Dark Knight Rises. The meticulously planned killing spree began when James Holmes set off tear gas, gas grenades and began opening fire uh, into an audience with multiple firearms, killing 12 people and injuring 58 others. Numbers of us had flashbacks to the uh, Columbine High School massacre on the April 20th, 1999, when 12 students and one teacher were murdered and 21 others were injured. Or we remember the more recent Virginia Tech massacre on April 16th, 2007, when an undergraduate uh, student shot and killed 32 people and wounded 17 others in an attack on that campus. These three very tragic stories caused many of us just to shake our heads and, and ask why. Now, on a more global scale, we could uh, talk this morning about any of the current 25 current wars, civil wars, or internal conflicts taking a place around the world uh, that result in untold tragedy and violent deaths, whether it's the Sudan or in Syria, Pakistan or Afghanistan. In addition, the United Nations High Commissioner Navi Pillay says that many indigenous groups and ethnic minorities around the world, especially in Bolivia and Colombia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Nepal and Sierra Leone, are suffering discrimination, abuse and injustice due to either racism or sexual and religious intolerance. And these worldwide and global problems can become just the background noise to the everyday pain and suffering experienced in all of our individual lives, through sickness, disease, and premature death, through abuse, rape, betrayal, divorce, accident, calamity, and the effects of crime. Every day in the Peoria Journal Star, our great local paper, you can open up the Section A to the National International Section, and you can read about horrific things that people are suffering all around the world and in our community, as well as the things that, uh, the insidious things that people can inflict upon one another. And I know many of your stories of pain and suffering, and they are very real and very traumatic, often suffocating and debilitating. In the shadow of these things, we often wonder, why? Why me? Why us? Why now? How could a good God possibly allow such horrible tragedy? If God is so loving, then why didn't he act to prevent such things? And so in today's message, why does God allow tragedy and suffering? I want to begin preparing us to wrestle with and answer these perplexing questions. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow our heads and hearts before you at the start of this brand new week, and we say thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for soundness of mind and health of body that allows us to gather. Thank you for the freedom we enjoy that enables us to be here today. And at the start of this week, we gather together with the intention of telling you that we want our lives to count for you. We, we want to bring glory to your name in what you give us to do. And so we pray the prayer, Lord, you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. We bless your name, Lord, and ask for the fullness of 
uh, the revelation of your name to come into all of our lives, the fullness of salvation, fullness of your spirit, the fullness of safety and security and soundness and success. May we experience the real life you said you came for us to enjoy. Put power on your word to our lives as we begin to grapple with, Lord, this eternal and perplexing problem. Put grace on it to each one where we live, what we've experienced, the pain, tragedy, and suffering we've gone through or that we're now in. Come, Jesus, as the shepherd of our soul and walk with us today is our prayer in your name. Amen. Christian apologist and author Lee Strobel shared in a recent message at the Cherry Hills Community Church in Colorado this, and I quote, The why question is not a new one. It goes back thousands of years. It was asked in the Old Testament by Job and the writers of the Psalms, and it was especially relevant during the 20th century when we witnessed two world wars, the Holocaust, genocides in the Soviet Union and China, devastating famines in Africa, the killing fields of Cambodia, the emergence of AIDS, the genocide in Rwanda, and the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. And the 21st century didn't start any better. There was 9-11, and now the Syrian slaughters, and on and on. Why do all of these horrific things happen if there's a loving and powerful God? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's interesting that in, in many surveys through the years taken by pollsters, when asked uh, people, uh, when people are asked, what, what is the one question that they could ask God if, if the occasion presented itself, their universal number one response is this. Why is there suffering in the world? If you were to ask me, well, why would a good God allow a deranged gunman to spray the Aurora movie theater with gunfire? killing and wounding more people in any single act of internal terrorism uh, that's happened with, with a gun, the only answer I could honestly give is, I don't know. Now, this is not an attempt to avoid the difficult questions. As a pastor who's walked with many people through the valley of the shadow of death over the last three decades, I've wrestled very deeply with this question. Nor is it an attempt to be simplistic. I understand that these questions are complex, long-standing, and they demand way more than a 30-minute message on a Sunday morning. Uh, rather, I'm attempting just to be totally transparent. Uh, frankly, after walking as a Christ follower now for 38 years, I just don't have a better answer. Now, in the next few minutes, I'm going to attempt to encourage you from both a biblical and practical perspective with just a few things that I have found helpful. Now, I answered, I don't know, because we don't have God's mind. We don't have his eternal perspective. There are some things we will never understand. The book of Deuteronomy tells us in the 29th chapter, the 29th verse, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. The apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we'll see everything with perfect clarity. I love how Eugene Peterson turns this phrase in his translation of the Bible called the message. We don't see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. Friends, someday we'll see with clarity, but for now, things are foggy. 
every year with, uh, up till last year, the entire Jim Hare family, uh, my six brothers and sisters, our kids and their kids, and my mom and dad took an annual family vacation to Pentwater, Michigan. And, um, and what we would do, we'd all uh, bunk up at a place called the McVoy Cottage next to the Charles Mears State Park. And in that park was a waterway channel that connected Pentwater Lake and the marina with Lake Michigan. And at the end of the channel pier was this actual famous lighthouse whose mystical green light and incessant foghorn provided a warning at night uh, or in foggy conditions. And it, in, in the fog, boaters could always see its penetrating green light and hear the sound of the foghorn to direct their way. And so this morning, I'd like to share three simple encouragements to help direct our way through the fog, to guide our initial response to tragedy, suffering, and pain. First, be prayerful. In the presence of pain, suffering, and loss, be prayerful. Now, I know that most of you are, and and I want to bless that in you. Quite honestly, it's perhaps the single most powerful thing we can do. Pray for yourself, by yourself, or on the behalf of others. It's the unseen and unheralded kingdom response to pain, suffering, and tragedy. Appealing to the Father, God the Father, to move in mercy and compassion in our lives and the lives of those who are suffering. Now, very often in pain... We cannot pray for ourselves. And I think God the Father totally understands. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up because of it. We are sustained in those moments by the prayers of others. We live in community, in a family. God ordained no solo flights. We're to live in a a family that's committed to one another. And when we suffer... Uh, we, we enjoy and reap the benefit of the prayers of others on our behalf. When others suffer, they reap the benefit of our prayers on their behalf. That's the way it works, because God knows that the human response to, to debilitating pain and suffering is almost to lock up and not to even have the energy or capacity to pray ourselves. That's why he's ordained that we be a part of a vibrant, connected church family. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, be happy with those that are happy and weep with those that weep. And on two dozen other occasions in his writings, the Apostle Paul urged his listeners to pray for him, and he urged them to pray for one another. He got it. Let's follow his example. If we can pray for ourselves, then I think it's simplest to join the Apostle Paul uh, in, in his prayer, the one with which he began almost all of his letters. And it's not a casual, meaningless uh, salutation, but he said, grace and peace from God our Father. And that is a, a simple but powerful prayer that we can pray in, in times of duress, pain, suffering, and tragedy. Pray for grace. Grace is simply God's ability and strength and power to make it. Uh, it's power outside of ourselves, which is what we need in suffering to face the future. And then he said, pray for peace, a radically settled and softened heart in the midst of swirling circumstances. That's how I like to think of peace, a radically settled heart in the midst of circumstances over which we have little control. And so be prayerful. 
uh, in the face of tragedy, for those that are suffering, for their families, for the communities of faith in which those people are connected, and their communities of residence, the place where they live. Now, like you, I can't begin to possibly understand and comprehend the implications of the shooting in Aurora. You know, our lives have marched forward, and theirs have have been radically, uh, unalterably changed forever. I know that after substantial tragedy and loss, things never go back to normal. There's a new normal, but it never goes back to the way it was. Jerry Sitzer says in his excellent book, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss, this, and I quote, Catastrophic loss is like undergoing an amputation. It will transform us or destroy us, but will never leave us the same. There is no going back to the past, which is gone forever. Only going ahead to the future, which has yet to be discovered. And so that's one of my reasons to encourage you to be prayerful for yourselves, your families, or the, those that are involved in tragedy. Pray for them to experience God's grace moving forward, his peace to move forward uh, for healing and for strength, uh, the ability to face the future because life marches on. Be prayerful for the church that we respond in ways that actually reflect the character of Christ in what we do and what we say. Be prayerful for those who are assisting, those who are surround, the greater cloud that surrounds those in pain and suffering. Uh, maybe it's the multitudes of rescue personnel or recovery teams or hospital staff and nurses and caregivers and therapists and friends and relatives that, that work tirelessly in rescue and restoration and recovery post the traumatic event. And then on larger scale tragedies, I would just encourage us uh, to be prayerful for our president, for the governors of the states and the mayors of the cities in which tragedy takes place, and their advisors to have God-given wisdom to know how to best reflect um, the, a proper and a, and a fitting and appropriate response. And of course, ultimately, we want to pray for God's kingdom to come. That demarcation in the Lord's Prayer that we've been learning, pray for God's kingdom to come, his peace to come to the earth. So be prayerful, be my first encouragement as a way of responding. Secondly, be restrained. Let's follow the master's way and be restrained in our commentary. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's open to Luke 13 together. We're going to see here how Jesus responds to a national tragedy and a natural disaster. You you may not have seen this in this text before, but let's look at it. Luke 13 we're going to read together verses 1 to 5. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? No, I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Now, before I comment directly on the text, let me say this. Some have asked, why couldn't God have created a world where suffering and tragedy don't exist? Well, he did. Uh, the reality is that the original creation was powerful and beautiful. 
The first book of the Bible records the story of the original creation, and the record in the first chapter concludes with these words. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. But because God desired that men and women love him freely and without coercion, he blessed on us and bestowed us with a will that's free to choose. The sad turn of the creation story, as we know, is that Adam and Eve abused their free will by rejecting God's instruction for life, choosing instead their own selfish ambition and desire, its destructive path, and in so doing, introduced sin and evil to the whole world. And ever since, mankind has lived in a world system that's cursed by sin. Paul gives us insight in the fifth chapter of Romans when he says in verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, the world system. Author C.S. Lewis points out very powerfully in his classic book, The Problem of Pain, which I highly recommend, and I quote, Christianity asserts that God is good, that he made all things good, and that one of the good things he made, namely the free will of rational creatures, by its very nature includes the possibility of evil, and that creatures availing themselves of this possibility have become evil, end quote. So the kingdom of darkness is actually been at the root of all the stealing, killing, and destroying in the world since then. The curse of sin and evil, sickness, disease, death, injustice, oppression, violence, it all came as a result of the violation of free will of our spiritual foreparents when they introduced sin and evil to the world system. And we've been suffering since. And since that time, people are evil and do evil things. That's because ultimately we're, we're all born separated from the life and light that's in God until we turn, the Bible language is repent, we turn from sin and selfishness to serve the living God. Now, in the text that we just read, Jesus recognized the fact of evil and suffering. And his entire life and ministry were directed at combating evil and darkness, sin, and the devil and his demons, bringing forgiveness and healing and restoration, the shalom, the peace and plenty of God's kingdom everywhere he went and every opportunity. Jesus saw life as a battle between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And we'll notice that in this occasion, Jesus did not use the national uh, tragedy or the natural disaster as an opportunity to launch into a discussion of the source of evil and its fairness in the world, did he? In this incident, he did not try to explain why people like Pilate could have possibly killed innocent people worshiping in the temple. Nor did he try to explain the reasons or causes behind a natural disaster where a falling tower killed 18 innocent people. And he pointed out that those who suffered and died uh, were, were not any more deserving of judgment than anyone. And he offered no suggestion as to why God allowed it. He certainly could have explained, but he didn't. He was restrained. He refocused people, uh, all of their questions and confusion, back onto 
personal responsibility to God in the midst of a battle between two kingdoms. You see, Jesus always took these philosophical, existential, existential, significant questions that are floating about four feet above our head and the fodder of all kinds of discussion in, in life. And he, he riveted it back home right where we live. And he, he threw people back onto the question of responsibility for God. Are you ready to meet God? Jesus always does that. He, he takes the philosophical and makes it personal. Are you ready to meet God? He asked them twice. You too will perish if you don't turn from your sin and selfishness. If you don't repent, the Bible word repent simply means you're going one direction and you stop and turn around. And Jesus said, unless you do that, you're going to meet a similar fate. You too will perish. I often fear that the church is frequently, frequently prone to use times of suffering, tragedy, and loss as an opportunity to speculate about you know, who or what God is judging and what the devil is doing and what God is saying and what we're supposed to be learning and all kinds of things like that. Uh, I'm saddened that the church so often speaks with such, you know, clarity, great clarity and proud conviction that it knows for certain what God is doing or saying. Many of us remember at 9-11 how some were quick to point out that God was judging faithless America because we'd abandoned our spiritual roots, uh, or he was judging our dependence on uh, money. That's why that was the trade center towers that came down, or our, our unjust reliance on the military, which is why the Pentagon was attacked. I just shake my head. Frankly, we know very little. And And... We don't have a clue why God allowed such a tragedy. If you've suffered at the hands of the church on these quick and easy answers as to like why God is doing whatever he's doing, I just want to say I'm sorry. The church has acted irresponsibly. When those close to you suffer, just be restrained in your advice. Don't offer trite and meaningless solutions or say trite and meaningless things. Oh, we understand what you're going through. You do not. You don't. So don't say you do. Now, you're well-meaning in your effort. Weeping endures for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Oh, they're in a much better place now. Or God has all eternity to make it up to you. Or God knows what's best. Or even misquoting scripture, well, you know, God works it all for good. Church, just be restrained in what we say. Practice what Joseph Cardinal Bernadine says in his powerful book, The Gift of Peace. He calls it the ministry of presence. Just be with. People who are suffering don't want a theological treatise on pain and suffering. People don't need an intellectual or philosophical response to the global issue of pain. They're not helped with a Christian bumper sticker. You know, those little trite sayings that people, I hope none of you have one on your car. (laughs) 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 Whoops. Uh, Okay. You know, what they desperately need in these moments is the very real and very powerful mercy and compassion and presence of Jesus, the great shepherd. And that's what our presence with them in suffering 
communicates. So be restrained. Now, I have no doubt that God will have something to say eventually to us, to those who suffer, to the communities in which uh, have felt the effects. But let's just be patient for him and let's uh, let's wait for him to speak. Uh, and then when we're prompted by the Holy Spirit to say something, remember what Proverbs 25, 11 says, saying the right thing at the right time is like a golden apple in a silver setting. When we speak, make sure it's actually the Holy Spirit uh, content. It, it aligns with what God's revealed about himself and that it's the right time. Because, see, the right thing at the wrong time can be just as bad as the wrong thing. Got it? It's always going to align with the Holy Spirit reveals his truth. God is always good. God is always trustworthy. God is present. God is wise enough to dispense his power and his mercy at just the right times in just the right ways, even though we don't understand. And the circumstances of our life do not diminish God's goodness nor his power in our life. What God, who God reveals himself to be. So be prayerful, be restrained. Thirdly, be assured. Our eternal hope is not diminished by tragedy, suffering, and loss. In fact, it shines even clearer because we believe that the story of the world isn't over yet. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to return to bring to completion the kingdom that he launched when he came at the first advent. And he's going to put an end to this present world order. And everything, as we know, is going to change. Pain and suffering will be eradicated. People uh, will be held accountable for the evils that they've committed. And justice will be served in a perfect way. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible is not a textbook on theology You can't open it up to S for suffering and see what Jesus has to say. It doesn't offer clean and antiseptic solutions for the great eternal questions of life. Rather, uh, in a a gritty and unsanitized, non-photoshopped way, it records how people did life and tried to make sense out of it in the midst of their suffering and circumstances, how they walked with God and how he walked with them and what they heard him say and And it does that often in a way that goes without commentary. The Holy Spirit just records it, and he doesn't tell us what to make out of it. He just records it and says, it's true, because my word's inspired. Deal with it. But now, interestingly, the Bible does paint a powerful picture of a preferable future for all of us who are Christ followers. There is a better day coming when the kingdom comes in full. Pain and suffering and loss that that we're experiencing now uh, cause us to yearn for this day, the complete redemption. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, what we're suffering now cannot be compared to what we'll receive someday. Romans 8, uh, uh, verse 18, um, he says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he'll reveal to us later. And he goes on in in that chapter to, to explain how even creation itself is yearning for liberty from the sin-cursed uh, world. It, 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 creation, nature itself, is, is looking forward to the day of the glorious liberty when the inheritance that we've received in part because Jesus came is going to come to fruition in fullness at the end of time. And we as Christ followers can hold unswervingly to the truth of, of God's promise in the Scripture that there's a day coming when all 
of heaven and earth is going to be remade. And it will then resemble how Jesus intended for it. John said in, in the book of Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He'll live with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. So there is coming a day, friends, when the kingdom will be consummated and life as we know it will be radically, eternally, forever changed. And so the story isn't over. That's one of the reasons we have such great hope that there's an equalizer coming. Pain and injustice and suffering will be dealt with. Those who are have robbed and stolen and, and murdered, they will be dealt with. The, the, the great judgment will happen and we will be eternally living with God on the renewed earth in a way that he originally intended at the start of, the, of everything. Now, God's ultimate answer to the evil world and the suffering we face is not an explanation, either a theological or philosophical explanation, but it rather it's an incarnation. Suffering is a very personal problem. And it demands a very personal response. And because God is not some distant, far off, removed from us, disinterested deity, he personally entered our world and experienced our pain when he sent Jesus. Jesus is there in our suffering and in our pain. And he offers us comfort and peace and security in uh, our tragedy and our loss and offers us the hope of a preferable future. And his encouragement, friends, is that no matter how deep our pain, our confusion, our anger, our despair, our hopelessness, his love is deeper, richer still. Nothing can separate us from God the Father's love. I'd like to conclude by reading the anthem that the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ our Lord. God 
we want to believe that promise with all of our heart. That there is nothing that we experience, that we have experienced, or ever will. No amount of pain, confusion, bitterness, anger, disappointment, or despair, or hopelessness that can stand against your love revealed in Christ. Thank you. Thank you you didn't leave us here to suffer pain and the curse of the world on our own, but you entered our pain and suffering through Christ. And in Christ, you offer us the hope of a secure future. We thank you for that hope. And Lord, I pray that today, wherever your people have suffered, are suffering or will in the days ahead, that you would breathe life and hope on the promise of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Lord, you stand in the center of historical truth as the hope of the world. May this promise and revelation grow large in our hearts, even today, Lord, as we we worship you now, may it enlarge in our lives. And as we give you our our hearts and in song and in our gifts, Lord, we, we pray that you'd take these for what they are, small tokens that just say we love you. In your name, amen.